Hello, once again, this is Dr. Phil Fernandez, the founder of the Institute of Biblical Defense and the academic dean of Ferriston Theological Seminary. Today's lecture is lecture number five on world religions. World religions, lecture number five, we'll be discussing Hinduism. Hinduism. Before we get, to, get started, I'd like us to open up to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. Matthew 19, verses 25 and 26. And that reads, And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking upon them, Jesus said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is the biggest distinction, I believe, between Christianity and the world religions. All other world religions, apart from Christianity, teach that the finite, imperfect man can reach the infinite, perfect God on his own. And to me, that seems to be philosophically absurd. Just as a slow runner has a difficult time catching up with a fast runner, so too a limited, imperfect being could never reach uh, a finite, uh, a finite and limited, imperfect being could never reach an infinite and perfect being on his own. But that's what Jesus Christ taught, that uh, the finite man cannot reach the infinite God on his own. Therefore, if the finite man is to be saved, the infinite God must take the initiative and save him. And so salvation by God's grace, totally apart from human effort, is the Christian doctrine, whereas all other world religions teach that man can save himself. Brief introduction of Hinduism. It's one of the oldest religious systems in the world. It's one of the most complex religious systems in the world. Hinduism is actually a family of religions. There's many different sects among the, uh, Hinduism. You can be a pantheist, one who believes that God is the universe, or a polytheist, one who believes in many gods, you could be a monotheist, person who believes there's only one God. You could even be an agnostic and question God's existence, or an atheist and believe that God does not exist, and you can still be a good Hindu. So Hinduism is a family religion. You could be a pantheist, a polytheist, a monotheist, an agnostic, or an atheist. Hinduism is also tolerant of other religions. We talk about many paths leading up the mountain, many different ways uh, to get to heaven. And so Hinduism is very popular. Hinduism today is coming to the United States in the form of the New Age movement. And there's this tolerance for other religions. Of course, they claim to tolerate other religions, but if a religion says that this is the only way of salvation, then they cannot tolerate that religion. So even though Hinduism claims to be tolerant of other religions, it cannot be tolerant of Christianity. Now the Hindu scriptures, the Hindu scriptures were written 
between 1400 BC and 500 AD. The Hindu scriptures were written between 1400 BC and 500 AD. In other words, you have no, no one listed as the founder of Hinduism because it dates back so far no one knows for sure. But the Hindu scriptures are written between 1400 BC and 500 AD. There are the Vedas. These are Hindu scriptures. The Vedas, V-E-D-A-S, they're the oldest Hindu text. Contains, contains hymns, prayers, and rituals. The Vedas have three parts. The mantras, which are hymns to God. The mantras, which are hymns to God. The brahmanas, which are rituals. The brahmanas, which are rituals. And the Upanishads. The Upanishads, which is doctrine. In the Vedas, there are various Hindu deities and magical spells. Various Hindu deities, various Hindu gods and magical spells. That's the Vedas, the oldest Hindu text containing hymns, prayers, and rituals. Now the Upanishads, the Upanishads were written between 800 and 600 B.C. They contain the secret teachings of Hinduism, the Upanishads, between 800 and 600 B.C. Ramayana, Ramayana is an epic tale in poetic form about King Rama. Ramayana is an epic tale in poetic form about King Rama. King Rama is supposed to be an incarnation of the god Vishnu. King Rama is supposed to be an incarnation of the god Vishnu. So that's Ramayana. Then there's Mahabharata. Mahabharata, it's all one word, Mahabharata, is an epic tale about the deeds of Aryan clans. Epic tale about the deeds of Aryan clans. Also among the Hindu scriptures is the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita, B-H-A-G-A-V-A-D, in another word, Gita, G-I-T-A, the Bhagavad Gita, written in the first century A.D. It basically means Song of the Blessed Lord. Bhagavad Gita, first century A.D., Song of the Blessed Lord. This is the most sacred book, the most sacred book for the Hindus. It is the best known of all India's books. And the Bhagavad Gita is found in the 
Mahab Harata, the Mahab Harata, which is the epic tale about the deeds of Aryan clans, which we discussed a little earlier. So the Bhagavad Gita, the best known of all India's books, and it's found in the Mahab Harata, which is the epic tale about the deeds of Aryan clans. Now the Bhagavad Gita, the story within it is a dialogue between Krishna dialogue between Krishna and the warrior Arjuna the story is a dialogue between Krishna and the warrior Arjuna now Krishna is the eighth avatar of Vishnu an avatar would be an incarnation or a manifestation of the god Vishnu. So just as Rama was supposed to be a incarnation of the god Vishnu in Ramayana, Krishna here in Bhagavad Gita is the eighth avatar or eighth manifestation or incarnation of the god Vishnu. And so the story of Bhagavad Gita is a dialogue between Krishna and the warrior Arjuna. The Bhagavad Gita endorses devotion to a particular God as a means of salvation. The Bhagavad Gita endorses a devotion to a particular God as a means of salvation. I don't think that what is meant, I don't believe that what is meant here is any particular God. I mean, just you just choose yourself. Pick out one of the many gods, devote yourself to that one, and that will be your means of salvation. And then finally on the Hindu scriptures, I'd like to mention the Puranas, the Puranas, P-U-R-A-N-A-S, which is legends, contains legends of gods, goddesses, demons, and ancestors. The Puranas, legends of gods, goddesses, demons, and ancestors. Let's discuss very briefly, we gave a brief introduction, talked about the Hindu scriptures. Let's talk very briefly about some of the Hindu teachings. Some of the Hindu teachings. The first one is Brahman. Brahman. B-R-A-H-M-A-N. Brahman. Brahman is the ultimate reality. Brahman is the ultimate reality. God is all. Pantheism. God is the universe. Now they often Hindus will talk of Brahman as a three-in-one God. A three-in-one God. They do not mean that he is uh, a trinity, though. But Brahman, the ultimate reality, God is all. But the talk often of a three-in-one God, Brahma is the creator. Brahma is the creator. Vishnu is the preserver. Vishnu is the preserver. And Shiva. Shiva is the destroyer. 
So their concept of God contains creative powers, preserving powers, but also destroying powers. In other words, their God is as much cruel as he is non-cruel. Their God is as much evil as he is good. Besides Brahman, Hindu teachings contain the doctrine of moksha, moksha, M-O-K-S-H-A, moksha, which is the liberation of the soul, the liberation of the soul from the cycle of karma through knowledge, works, rituals, or devotions. Moksha is the liberation of the soul from the cycle of karma through knowledge, works, rituals, or devotion. And we're going to learn about karma in a little while. It's basically, it's the uh, consequences, consequences of a person's actions from a previous life and that's going to determine the present state of existence, whether you're going to be suffering or flourishing. It's all tied up in the doctrine of reincarnation. But moksha is the liberation of the soul from the cycle of karma to knowledge, works, rituals, or devotions. Man needs to be freed from the cycle of death and rebirth. Then there's the Hindu teaching of Atman, Atman, A-T-M-A-N. The soul or true self of each person, which is part of Brahman. The soul or the true self of each person, which is part, part of Brahman. So they have no doctrine of resurrection in Hinduism. There's no need uh, for the body. Uh, the true you is the soul, the Atman, the soul or true self of each person, and you're part of Brahman, you're part of the world soul. Next Hindu teaching I like to discuss is Maya. Maya, M-A-Y-A. This teaching states that the physical world is an illusion. Physical world is an illusion. It's probably better to say that reality is totally different than we see it. Reality is totally different than we see it. physical world is an illusion. We already discussed karma. Karma, the consequences. Karma is the consequences of a person's actions from a previous life. Consequences of a person's actions from a previous life which determine his present state of existence. Karma is the consequences of a person's actions from a previous life which determine his present state of existence, whether the person is going to be experiencing good or bad. Next, I'd like to discuss samsara, samsara, S-A-M-S-A-R-A, -S -S -A -A. samsara, 
which is transmigration. Transmigration, also called reincarnation. It's the cycle of death and rebirth. Death and rebirth. And then death again, and then rebirth again, and then death again, and rebirth again. The soul constantly reincarnated in another body. The cycle of death and rebirth is samsara, also called transmigration or reincarnation. This rebirth, you can become either a human or an animal. Now, when all your negative karma or when all your bad karma is done away with, nirvana is achieved. When all your bad or negative karma is done away with, when you've suffered for all your negative or bad karma, when all bad or negative karma is done away with, nirvana, N-I-R-V-A-N-A, -A, nirvana is achieved, a state of eternal bliss becoming one with the world soul. A state of eternal bliss becoming one with the world soul, with the impersonal Brahman, the impersonal soul. Now the caste system, C-A-S-T-E, the caste system is a big, plays an extremely large role in Hinduism. We're going to go from the top of the caste system down to the bottom, the upper classes down to the lower classes. Uh, this has been the source of much poverty. It's been the source of much prejudice in India. But the caste system, from top to bottom, the Brahmins, the Brahmins are the priests, and philosophers that are honored by the masses. They're honored by the multitudes. The Brahmins are the priests and the philosophers honored by the masses. Below the Brahmins are the Kshatriyas, the Kshatriyas, K-S-H-A-T-R-I-Y A.S. Kshatriyas, the upper middle class, as professional persons and the government. They're below the Brahmins, who are the priests and philosophers. Below the Kshatriyas are the Vaisyas. The Vaisyas, V-A-I-S-Y-A-S. They're merchants and farmers merchants and farmers. And below the Vaisyas are the Sudras. The Sudras, S-U-D-R-A-S. They are the lowest class. They are the servants of the upper class. They're not even allowed to read the Vedas, the Holy Scriptures. Not allowed to read the Vedas, the Sudras, are the lowest class servants of the upper class. Now, besides these four main castes, in the Hindu caste system, there are thousands of sub-castes. 
thousands of subcasts between each one. The caste system is, has been outlawed by the India government, been outlawed by the India government, but it is still practiced today despite that fact. The caste system, outlawed by the India government, but it is still practiced nevertheless. Many of the people view the system as being divinely inspired, inspired by the God or by the gods. So the system is thought to be divinely inspired. That's the caste system. I'd like to discuss briefly the uh, view of Nirvana. Nirvana. Nirvana is their view of salvation. Their view of salvation, which is reaching, attaining eternal bliss. Attaining eternal bliss. Now there's three ways in Hinduism to achieve nirvana. Three ways to achieve nirvana. There is the way of works, which is the way of rituals. The way of works or rituals. Many times the Hindus will put cow dung in their hairs as, as some of their rituals. Go for uh, weeks without food or weeks without washing. But the way of works, the way of rituals. Then there is, secondly, the way of knowledge. The way of knowledge. Usually in the way of knowledge, three doctrines or teachings are vitally important. Under the way of knowledge, number one, human suffering is based upon ignorance. Human suffering is based upon ignorance. See, suffering is really an illusion. Here you can see Hinduism's influence upon Christian science. Human suffering is based upon ignorance. Number two under the way of knowledge is the belief that all is one and all is God. All is one and all is God. That's the doctrine of pantheism. All is one and all is God. God is the universe. And then number three, selfhood is an illusion. Selfhood is an illusion. We are not individuals, we are all part of the world soul. So that's the way of knowledge, a way to uh, attain nirvana which is reaching eternal bliss or a putting out of the flame uh, when you get absorbed into the world soul uh, the third way to achieve nirvana is the way of devotion the way of devotion the way of devotion is when you devote your life and you devote yourself completely to a deity of your choice, to a god of your choice. You choose from the many Hindu gods or you make one up yourself. But you choose a god, a deity, to devote your life to. 
And the way of devotion, many times meditation will be used. Meditation will be used to try to attain nirvana. And meditation would be the emptying, emptying of a relaxing and the emptying of, of your own, emptying your mind of your own thoughts and then uh, calling upon with one word mantras, calling upon Hindu gods. And what you end up with in a situation like that, you surrender the control of your mind and you invite demonic uh, influence. And it can lead to, uh, it can lead to uh, demonic possession. Well, that's nirvana, merging with the world soul. Merging with the world soul, and it is also uh, ending the cycle of reincarnation. So that you're no longer reincarnated in another body, you dealt with all your bad karma and now your soul uh, is no longer reincarnated but merges with the world soul, the Brahman. Then there's the sacred cow. The sacred cow, remember that cow might have been a human 15 years ago in Hindu thought. But the sacred cow is given reverence to the point of worship because cows are thought to possess great power and so you'll have multitudes of Indians starving to death multitudes of Indians starving to death while fat cows walk the streets and then many people will compare Hinduism with Christianity for its great uh, accomplishments and helping the needy, which is ludicrous. In fact, not only does a sacred cow lead people to elevate cows above humans so that humans starve and cows are well fed, but also the caste system is very cruel. Uh, and also the whole view of reincarnation, if you help a person who's suffering, all you're doing is messing with his karma so that he's going to have to suffer again in the next life for what he could have suffered for in this life. So you're just prolonging his agony by helping him. And so uh, a pure Hindu is not going to help people who are suffering. Each person's got, got to suffer themselves for their own bad karma. And then the final doctrine I'd like to discuss is yoga. Yoga. Yoga is just a general term. Yoga is a general term for the Hindu path of union with the divine. Yoga is just a general term for the Hindu path of union with the divine. It's the, the path that the Hindu travels in his attempt to have his Atman, his individual soul, blend uh, and become part of the world soul, merge with the world soul. And so we discussed 
some Hindu teachings, Brahman, Maska, Atman, Maya, Karma, Samsara, the caste system, Nirvana, the sacred cow, and yoga. He discussed some of the Hindu scriptures, the Vedas, the Upanishads, Ra Ramayana, Mahabharata, Bhagavad Gita, and the Puranas. And now let's briefly, in the remainder of our time, let's briefly refute the doctrine, uh, doctrines of Hinduism. First off, the view of pantheism. Pantheism is refuted by Genesis 1.1. Pantheism teaches that God is everything. God is the universe. But in Genesis 1.1, the teaching is very clear in the scriptures that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God is not the universe. Instead, God is the creator of the universe. Also, there is the teaching in Hinduism, though I would believe more pure Hinduism, Hinduism would say that the many lesser gods are just uh, manifestations of the one true God, which is an impersonal God. But there's the view of polytheism. Many Hindus do worship many gods and see them as all separate and often at times do not see them as merging into the one God. Well, polytheism, the belief in many gods, is refuted in the scriptures. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God beside me. So the Bible definitely teaches that pantheism is false and that polytheism is false. Another teaching about God that is denied uh, or that is taught by Hinduism, they teach that God is impersonal and undefinable. He's impersonal and undefinable. He's like a door or a piece of wood. You cannot have a love relationship with him. He, he, he's not a moral guy. He doesn't give you what is right, tell you what is right and what is wrong. He's not a personal being. He's an impersonal force. He's an it. Of course, John 3.16 tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 17 John chapter 17 and verse 3, John 17 and verse 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast, hast sent. And so Jesus says that God can be known. The Hindu says God is undefinable. Now, at this point, we might be asking, well, Dr. Fernandez, you discussed pantheism. You said that the Bible te teaches against pantheism, and the Bible teaches against polytheism, and the Bible teaches against an impersonal and undefinable God. 
But how do we know that the Bible's right? Well, just think for a minute. Uh, number one, science has shown us that the universe had a beginning. The Big Bang Theory shows us that the universe is expanding and that if you go back in time, it's getting denser and denser until eventually you reach a point where it, uh, you reach a point of infinite density. In other words, the universe began at a point in time in the past. The universe was created out of nothing. Now, with pantheism, the universe would have to be an eternal universe. Now, some people like Carl Sagan try to say, well, once the universe expands too far, it's going to then start getting dense again and pull back until it's going to explode again and then just keep going back and forth, expanding and then pulling together, expanding and pulling together, expanding and pulling together. But science has shown that this is an impossibility. And even if it did that, even if it did go back and forth like a rubber band, uh, eventually it would still, because of the second law of thermodynamics, that the amount of usable energy in the universe is winding down, eventually uh, it will expand uh, further and further until eventually the universe will die out as well, which means the universe still has to have a beginning. In other words, the universe had a beginning, something else had to cause it to exist. Uh, another thing, too, is to ground all finite, limited existence, all existence that has a beginning, must be grounded in a source that is itself infinite and eternal. And there could only be one infinite God, because if you had two infinite gods, they would limit each other. They would limit the power of one another, but because they could always wrestle to a stalemate. But to limit the power of one another means that neither one of them is infinite. They'd both be finite, and then their existence would have to be explained by an infinite being. But you can only have one infinite being because two infinite beings would limit each other, and then they wouldn't be infinite. So you can only have one infinite being. Therefore, polytheism, the belief in many gods, is also false. Another thing is if God is impersonal, if God is impersonal, then where did man get his personality from? Now the Hindu can deny, uh, the, the Hindu can deny personality all he wants, but he has to assume it in order to make those denials. I mean, impersonal forces don't communicate. But for a Hindu to deny personality, he has to communicate that denial. And hence, he has to uh, affirm his personhood in order to attempt to refute his personhood. And then if we say that God is undefinable, we can at least define him as the undefinable. Which means if you can say anything at all about God that is true, then you know something of God and you can at least define him in a very vague way. And so we see that even apart from the Bible, Hinduism does not stand the test in these areas. Their doctrine that selfhood is an illusion, the Bible teaches in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that God created man 
in his own image. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created him. The human being does exist as an individual. God did create separate individuals. And we talked about the fact that when a man a Hindu tries to deny his selfhood, he affirms it by making a statement. Not only does he affirm his own existence, his own selfhood, but he also affirms the selfhood of the other person or the other mind that his mind is trying to communicate with. And so there's a definite problem with the view that selfhood is an illusion. Then the Hindu teaches that there's no such thing as sin. No such thing as sin. Romans 3.10 tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one, and that all have gone astray. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death. So the Bible definitely teaches there is such a thing as sin. In fact, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, the truth is not in us and we make ourselves a liar. There is such a thing as sin, and the Hindu knows that, and if you walked up to him and punched him in the nose, he would call the police on you, yet he's saying that there's no such thing as sin, no such thing as evil, but everyone recognizes evil when you are a victim. Then they teach salvation by human effort. Salvation by human effort. But Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 teach very clearly that man cannot save himself by works. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And of course, John 14, 6, Jesus Christ stated, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18 states, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so this teaching of salvation by human effort is false. Again, this is what separates Christianity from all other world religions. Matthew 19, 25, and 26, the disciples asked Jesus, How can man be saved? Jesus said, This is impossible with man, but all things are possible with God. In other words, man cannot save himself by his own human effort, therefore he must look to the God of creation to save him. The finite, imperfect man can never reach the infinite, perfect God on his own, and therefore he must look to the infinite, perfect God for the way of salvation. Also, reincarnation, the cycle of death and rebirth, is unscriptural. Hebrews 9:27 says it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. 
In Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, we have uh, uh, a discussion between two people who died, Lazarus the beggar, who's in heaven, and a gulf separating him from the rich man who was in hell. And uh, basically the message is that uh, once a person has died, they cannot return to earth and communicate with man. There will be no reincarnation. After a person dies, they await the judgment. And there will be a resurrection in the future. Our bodies will be resurrected and glorified. Our mortal bodies will put on immortality. But there will not be reincarnation. And then, of course, Christ's deity is rejected by the Hindu. Christ's deity is rejected by the Hindu. In Colossians 2.9, the Apostle Paul talks about Jesus, and he says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Titus, uh, in, in, uh, Titus 2.13, the Apostle Paul refers to him as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Peter, in 2 Peter 1.1, refers to him as our, our God, Christ Jesus, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is God. When Christ cleansed the temple, taking upon himself the authority as God in John chapter 2, the Pharisees asked him, give us a sign to prove that you have this kind of authority. In other words, they recognized he was doing only what God had the right to do, and they said, give us a sign proving your authority. And he said, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. John says he was talking about the temple of his body. Another time they asked him for his authority. He said, I'll give you the sign of, a sign of his authority. He said, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so too will the Son of Man be in the body of the earth for three days and three nights. In other words, Jesus Christ stated, my resurrection from the dead will prove that I am who I claim to be. And we have eyewitness testimony. Even Paul records 500 different witnesses witness Jesus Christ alive, risen from the dead. And this evidence proved that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Thank you, and God bless you.